Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Riesbindel. On this edition of the show, we're looking at the origins of public radio in the United States, including the important role that college and university-based stations played in the development of public radio. Josh Shepard joins to talk about his new book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and is director of the Radio Preservation Task Force at the Library of Congress. Josh, we're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. So your book covers a lot of ground as far as setting up the confluence of ideas and constituents that eventually lead to the creation of public radio. Um, so I wanted to start and just ask you about what prompted you to dive into this aspect of uh, the history. Yeah, I had originally come from philosophy and I had studied like public sphere theory and phenomenology and a lot of Marxism and social theory. And I was sort of imminently interested in these questions about what a public means, even beyond, you know, the political nature of a public. Uh, but when I went to Wisconsin for graduate school, they had uh, a lot of the data or evidence regarding the history of where the public came from in the U.S. You know, the, the origins of non-commercial media papers are basically split between Wisconsin and University of Maryland. And so, um, yeah, I became really interested in the logistics about how concepts of a public good or public service in the U.S., were translated into the material practices that we associate with the institutions. And I mean, you're sort of starting to answer this. These are these are huge questions. I probably shouldn't even start with such huge questions, but um, maybe like in a very succinct way, why do you think public radio is such a rich area for this type of study? So yeah, one of the distinctions uh, I try to make in the book is that you know, public media is a unique set of genres. Uh, it's a unique uh, policy history in its own way, but it is fundamentally different than commercial media uh, in one basic way. And that is commercial media um, is loyal to what we would call like a logics of accumulation. In other words, it's an advertising system. Everything that it does anticipates audience behaviors, and it tries to profit off of speculating who the listeners might be and then selling that information to commercial broadcasters. So that they have that down pretty sound uh, within sort of a very narrow range of chance. They're very likely going to make that money back with the content that they produce. Public media um, is a mission statement based approach to uh, serving democratic participation. And it comes out of education in this country, historically. And then it also um, is concerned with not reaching a wide audience or niche audience for you know, selling information to advertisers, but reaching the smallest possible audience or constituency in terms of localism or in terms of public service, as I mentioned before. So uh, it, it's basically um, something that is not supposed to reach big audiences or make money. And that is a fundamental philosophical difference uh, between uh, the institutional approaches. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think we're going to get more into that nitty gritty. Um, you know, I I want to start by asking some specific questions about the early days. And, and you start the book with, to me anyway, some really tantalizing stories about um, you know, the early days of educational radio. And, you know, that's something of personal interest to me, the early day, very early years of college radio. Um, so I'm excited that you were touching on that, um, what was happening at university-based stations, the 1920s, for example. Um, so maybe from your perspective, you know, why are university-based stations such an important part of this history of public radio? Yeah, so uh, public radio in the U.S. Uh, is distinct from other public systems. So, for example, the BBC began with the post office, right? They, it was a totally different locational start. Uh, public media in the U.S. Uh, comes out of educational broadcasting and educational radio. And 
the origins of that are actually compulsory education. And compulsory education just refers to state laws that you got to go to school. It's that simple. But in the way this country uh, implemented those, uh, they start in the 1950s uh, in Massachusetts with those laws. And then it doesn't actually fulfill every state until roughly 1918 uh, with Mississippi. So in other words, not every state mandated that you had to have an education until the last hundred years. It's a really recent phenomenon in this country. And they were fundamentally interested once those laws were in place with reaching every student, especially in rural areas. So um, the basics are that, you know, let's say you have farmers uh, that are 30 miles from a campus, you know, in Iowa or something like that. How do you have a night class for someone who has to traverse 30 miles on a horse in 1924, you know, um, after they've worked 10 hours in the field or something like that. And radio just made totally natural sense in its emergence, which is 1920, 1921 or so, depending on who you talk to as a strategy for distance learning. So it was essentially a correspondence, adult education, distance learning strategy um, that was implemented by chance uh, with the adult education programs that start to develop in the 19 aughts. So a lot of the origins of public media are actually in instructional media that were meant to reach these types of audiences um, who couldn't otherwise have a campus uh, within their reach. And so you get like cooking shows, you know, but they were called home economics back then. You know, you get uh, travelogues, you get, you know, the prototype for Anthony Bourdain on cable, you know, television is actually, you know, what is it like to live in France or something like that? You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, we get math programming. So in, in other words, a lot of the programming genres that we associate with public media and, um, and even parts of community media have their origins in instructional extension services from the universities themselves. And what, so if we think about these very early stations in the 1920s, are there a lot based at universities? And then within that, you know, category of station, are many of them doing this instructional programming? Is it a subset? I'm just curious, like how widespread that was. So yeah, there were very few uh, schools that sort of hit the ground running with this uh, from the top down, like a president of a university mandating some kind of extension services. Uh, it was actually a, a very early uh, form of educational technology that would have come out of a department like engineering or physics at first because they were experimenting with radio waves. And then they would realize, okay, if we're going to reach local listeners, what would a public service model that's useful for them be? And so I went to Wisconsin for grad school, and there's a town called Baraboo, about 35, I don't know, miles north, of, but they, it's like this tornado alley. So one of the earliest broadcasters in Wisconsin often makes the case that it started in 1917 during World War One, but one of the earliest um, uh, broadcast strategies is to tell farmers that there's a tornado coming, for example. That was an early form of public service media. Or like, what are you know, the pork belly prices today, you know, just like reporting so they knew where to sell or when not to sell. Um, and so a lot of the early public service approaches really do have what we would call like a localist uh, uh, model. You know, here's some economic information, here's some weather information. And so uh, the universities were, um, you know, at first at least experimental with these kinds of broadcasts. And then they realized that the same listeners might actually benefit from the correspondence classes and that they could just, you know, mail their uh, tests in and have them graded and sent back and get credit and all these kinds of things. So what you see really by the early 1920s is uh, a buy-in from uh, education departments, uh, early form, and the National Education Association in particular was very interested in visual instruction strategies and saw auditory instruction as an extension of that. And so by 1921 or so, uh, certain flagship Big Ten universities, we call them now, you know, Midwestern, so Ohio State, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa State um, became um, the, the great experimenters of how to reach their communities within state mandates. They had more funding from their states than other states did. 
Uh, by and large, though, a lot of universities were pretty piecemeal with their investment, and uh, it was a pretty ramshackle enterprise, at least for the first 10 years or so. Josh Shepard, I'm wondering already, like, um, was there a discussion of who was supposed to pay for this? Like, did they try to charge the students or was it already was 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 it more innocent and pure at this time that it was just a, a big experiment and it was uh, going to be free? It was going to be subsidized by these institutions. So you'd be shocked at how affordable or free a lot of these state institutions were <laughs> before World War II. A lot of these institutions were state subsidized or they would just be uh, almost like um, fees, but not tuition uh, at the time. So it was largely a free service of the progressive era, of the end of the progressive era, pre-New Deal that was emerging. And they... Um, yeah, the, the concept was, um, as I write in the book, uh, equal access to education. So by the mid-1920s, as a philosophy around universities doing broadcasting began to formulate, uh, their idea was, well, everyone in the state should have the same exact education regardless of location, and technology will help with that. And so especially in Wisconsin, they had something called the Wisconsin Idea, uh, and and that became a sort of philosophical system for a lot of R1, as they call them, Research One universities. So big research state schools um, from then on uh, is that if there is a service that the university can provide, how can we strategically reach every possible listener so that those are uh, met, so those uh, goals are met? I don't know if Eric... Eric may have been also wondering kind of about the cost of the radio equipment. I know from my own research, building radio stations at the time. And when I look at some of the numbers, it's kind of eye popping. Um, and in some cases, you know, schools or students may, I'm thinking about Haverford College, where I'm doing a lot of research about the 1920s. And I know that students there were reaching out to alums to help pay for the radio equipment because it was so expensive. So at, at these, um, at schools like Wisconsin, how did they pay for the building of these radio stations? And was it, you know, a challenge to get buy-in for that from administrators? So, yeah. Okay. So that it really was a, a great challenge at most schools. <laughs> I named some of the successful ones that I, I look at in the book, but I would say the majority of colleges and universities who had any interest in this at all uh, couldn't build um, the facilities. They didn't understand how to even begin uh, in a lot of cases. And then if it was, implemented in the really early days, the 1920s, uh, it was often what they called amateurs uh, who were building up the station at the time who had previously done the point-to-point -point broadcasting or distance listening. And so yet a lot of uh, hobbyists uh, actually did help to build the very early infrastructure before schools realized the PR potential of having a radio station and who that reaches. And then from there, obviously, the funds were pretty scrappy. It did have to come sometimes from donations. I'm not aware of every history about that. Or in, in some cases, they were lucky in the state did want to uh, increase facilities and access points for education like Ohio and like Wisconsin. And the, actually the money did come from the state, at least to some extent. But what you really see um, uh, in the early days is in some cases, people actually built their own equipment from scratch, which is fascinating. And they would actually, they had something called a vacuum tube, which is this giant glass thing. And they would actually blow their own vacuum tubes. They would learn to blow glass to like build these early facilities. And in other cases, they just um, had to rely on renting commercial station facilities um, or and so they'd have like mixed uh, dial, uh, you know, access during, during the day or sometimes it was even in very rare cases, shortwave. And so it'd be a shortwave kind of like redistribution of sound a little bit later. Uh, that would be a little bit later than the early 20s. But yeah, there are all these experiments in how to reach audiences that were based upon either the abundance or lack of what was available. I love I love your DIY stories because I've been running across some of those too um, at Haverford in the 1920s at WABQ. Uh, for the tower, they had a windmill that had been donated. And so they <laughs> put the windmill, I guess, yeah, like in, oriented in a strange way, but they used a windmill, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, so I also think it's interesting. Get it for know, wait. Did did they move the windmill, or they just put they just like climbed no, no, they the moved. existing windmill? No, it was donated from somebody else. So the windmill sure. was then attached to the roof of the a recycled windmill into yeah. a radio tower. Yeah, repurposed. Yeah, it's 
pretty amazing. Um, so it's interesting to me the way some of these early radio stations in the twenties are starting to connect with each other and collaborate. And, and so Josh, you talk about the association of college and university broadcasting stations, uh, which is probably pretty obscure to most people. Um, ACUBS, and that was formed in 1925, I believe. Can -hmm. you talk about how that came to be? And, you know, why, why did stations start to organize at that time? Yeah, so uh, there's a precursory answer and then an answer to this. And the precursory answer is that a lot of the history had framed um, the emergence of non-commercial media as in direct conflict with commercial media at all times. And so uh, to some extent, you know, you see um, people beginning from this point that, uh, you know, by the 1920s, you have the educators on one side, and then you have the commercial broadcasters on the other side. And really, it's a kind of a more mixed story, um, because the educational broadcasters, by their own words, had no idea what they were doing. And I think that's actually the starting point to this history, is that um, it should, there was some antagonism over what they called frequency scarcity. So there are only so many openings per city or area on certain AM bands. And so there was absolutely conflict over who gets those and the commercial broadcasters wanted them. Uh, but they weren't necessarily against education from what I've seen in the letters. So you get an ACUBS, which becomes renamed the National Association of Educational Broadcasters or NAEB in uh, 34, which then becomes the institution that builds NPR and PBS in the 1960s. But they, um, in the early, early days, they formed as like a clearinghouse to talk about best practices. So like, what programs are you doing? Uh, what's working with the audiences on write-in campaigns, you know, uh, what, um, you know, where do you put the mic compared to your face? Like they literally ask these very technical, simple questions. How do you keep people listening? You know, and that kind of stuff. So in, in the, about 1925, I would say even up to about 32 or 33, a pretty long time for a, a clearinghouse structure. There's just a lot of confusion and a lot of reporting about experiments in that period is they're saying, uh, well, there's these policies that are happening in D.C. What are they? We don't even know. We don't understand them, <laughs> which we get the Radio Act in 27. Uh, they're having conversations about like um, the, the music appreciation shows in particular, which seem to be the ones that are most appreciated by the listeners. Um, you know, how do you incorporate curriculum? Uh, from a school district right into a broadcast and make it listenable. So these very, very basic things uh, are being discussed through the ACUBS without necessarily a vision that pulls them together. It's actually the activist trade groups uh, that McChesney writes about in his book that are, give voice and concept to what they're doing. And that's about the early 1930s by my take. And, and for McChesney's book, uh, telecommunications. Uh, I, I, I wish I, I don't have the citation in front of me. This is Professor Robert McChesney, who wrote uh, a book about uh, really that, that, that period before the uh, Federal Radio Act and then before the Telecommunications Act in 1934, uh, contesting that received history up until the 90s, really, that folks just assumed commercial broadcasting was the natural end the natural state of broadcasting in the United States and that that its establishment had been relatively uncontested and his his uh, history and political economic analysis of that time uh, greatly complicated that and said, no, indeed, there was quite a bit of activism that you just um, that you just cited uh, around whether or not uh, commercial radio or non-commercial radio would be uh, present and or predominant. So, so I just wanted to provide a little bit of that background for folks who, who haven't taken a course in, in political economy. But, but what I wanted to come in and, and, and sort of ask you about or talk to you about is, you know, you sort of mentioned how the universities at the time in many ways didn't have a clear picture about what they were doing. It, it, hence the need in some cases for them to unify around discussing what are just basic techniques uh, around broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And there's a great story, I think, that that underlines this in your book about uh, a visiting dignitary from the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, which in many cases is thought of as, as one of the, the, the great success stories in, in state-sponsored and public media, um, who toured many of the educational stations. Um, 
and who had very withering reviews of their programming <laughs> and their approach. Like detuned pianos. He was irritated <laughs> by detuned pianos. <laughs> and yet, and yet the, he ended up having a lot of a lot of influence. I would love if you could fill in some of the details and why this is, why this uh, person from the BBC, why his visit and then his uh, very uh, negative reviews of what he encountered. Why, why is that important in the development of, of these university broadcasters that ultimately uh, evolve into public broadcasting? Yeah, thank you for that question. So uh, what happens is in 1934, uh, the Communications Act has two choices as it's being deliberated upon. It, it, it's going to either be something by which um, all possible groups are given ownership access to frequency allocations, or it's going to end up uh, sort of ratifying uh, an infrastructure that's already in place. And, and so what they did was they decided at, at the senatorial level that um, the pre-ownership of the facilities, so the, just the capacity to reach an audience and that the audience is listening because they have vaudeville performers or something, is in fact the American system that we have and qualifies as what they even called diversity at the time, the diversity of different corporations to be able to own um, you know, access points within the United States. And they qualify that as what they call public interest, convenience, and necessity. Uh, so that is basically the underlying logic of the American uh, FCC allocation delegation system to today. The entire system is built around public interest. And what that translates to is technical mastery without any sense of content or any sense of public service. So in, what happens is in uh, 34 is they have so much more money in the corporate side they have so much more talent, honestly, on the corporate side as far as radio is concerned, that uh, almost 70% of educational stations lost their licenses. And this has uh, been a big talking point in media history research for a long time is how could um, you know, a university or school district be told, no, you're not allowed to um, reach students or farmers with their classes? Okay, so that's the springboard on that. Uh, what happens is in the next couple of years after that, that the book is concerned with, is that they say, well, how can we make educational broadcasting better and how can we change the policy? And so what that requires is the study of best practices from someone who actually understood the best practices. And the Rockefeller Foundation is invited to begin to fund um, research into this area, which leads to this almost like uh, intellectual explosion about media research per se that I detail in especially chapter four of the book. And one of their strategies was to go to commercial broadcasters and give internships, as well as bring over this guy named Charles Seatman from the BBC. And he was the director of talks uh, after Hilda Matheson. And he had run afoul of John Reith, the very famous you know, um, overseer of and developer of the BBC. And they just didn't get along personally. And what happens is the Rockefeller Foundation sends over a young Edward R. Murrow to uh, learn enunciation practices at the BBC. And he goes back to the Rockefeller Foundation and says, there's this guy and um, he's extremely liberal or left, you know, by the standards and they don't like it at the BBC and they're going to like fire him or move him around somewhere. And could he come back to the States and they consult with our colleagues at these stations who are fledgling, losing all the policy battles, they themselves don't feel like they understand what they're doing with the mics. And they have this organization that they formed to talk about it. So they send Seatman to the States and he absolutely despises what he finds at every single university that he goes to. Um, and he will actually, he was so upset about the amount of travel time between the college towns. Uh, and then what he would find at the end of there that he would like insult people's weight in his writing, it's back to the Rockefeller Foundation, he would say they didn't talk well, just like in, in interpersonal conversations. Uh, he would, and he would just like have these very cutting and scathing reviews, not only of the station practices, but of the people who were the stewards of the concept of educational media. And but the irony was uh, when he was with them personally, that he would like show them how to have a good broadcast. He would like, they would like simulate broadcasts. He would say, here's what you need for that transmitter to make sure it reaches the longest possible space. And he actually becomes this hero in the process of disparaging them back to New York in the Rockefeller Foundation. And his, but his writings are so disparaging 
that they actually remove all the funding for educators until the 1950s almost, till the Ford Foundation steps in. But so he he sort of like trash talks them and becomes their hero at the ACUBS and then NAEB, same organization, um, in the process. So he actually becomes in a way like, I don't know, like uh, the great mentor of the transitional period of trial and error experimentation towards what becomes NPR and PBS. And uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, Josh, it's it sounds to me like I can't trust this guy from the BBC that he sounds like a snob and that he was rude. He was he was mad that that the United States existed. If you if he's mad that it's too big. But that's what the BBC was like. I right. Mean, well, uh, so so I'm, well, my question know. is, should I trust anything he has to say at all? Or is he an unreliable narrator in this case? Like, did he did he have a good point or was he, you know, was he a jerk? Yeah, there's one anecdote that I actually start the whole book with in, in the intro. There's only one guy he likes on the entire tour, and he's at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And Iowa State actually becomes one of the major institutions up through the 1960s, but Iowa City was not at the time. And he's named Carl Menzer. And Carl Menzer uh, basically had to run the station all alone. Uh, he apparently had a boss who hated him personally and would pick on him and like bully him in, in the studio. And, you know, as is true today, you know, stations just have to keep a certain number of hours on the air or they lose their licenses. So Menzer would pick up a violin and he would just play for two, three hours at a time by himself, the fiddle. You know, he would fiddle himself for two or three hours at a time. And uh, and but he had during that time, he would think about, like, how can I make this work? Because in 10, 15 years, this is probably going to be a big thing. And uh, Menzer um, and Seatman really hit it off. And Seidman writes these terrible things about his boss, but Menzer has this idea. And his idea is, what if we began to just trade one good broadcast with every station between the stations? Like, what if we could just like, my pals in Minnesota through the ACUBS, my pals in, you know, wherever, in Illinois. Like, what if we just like sent each other a broadcast? And he, after the Communications Act, begins to experiment with all the different distribution mechanisms. He becomes that figure who does that. And Seaman thinks that this guy's like a genius, like that he has seen 30 years into the future, how the American system is probably going to work, which is a decentralized university produced set of educational entertainment broadcasts that were of quality that could then give the auspice of what the time they called the fourth network. Cause there was, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC, and then public media would have been the fourth network before cable, you know? So um, they, uh, so that's the one person that, and in fact, Menzer and Seatman and these other in early influencers uh, do build the early infrastructure for NPR and PBS uh, about 20, 20 years down the line. So I, I loved, this is all really fascinating to me. And I love that there was this guy who toured a bunch of university stations. It's right up my alley, although I'm yeah. not mean, I'm not mean to people. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like what was, how many radio stations did he visit? And were they all ostensibly educational stations? Like, were there any student run stations in that mix by any chance? Or were they all more of what we think of as uh, you know, trying to do this educational extension like programming. Yeah, that's a great question, especially uh, which I and I've read your work with interest, as you know, about uh, the differences between educational and college uh, radio uh, in the early in the foundational days. So, uh, from what I can tell from uh, the documents that exist still, right, the extant archival documents, uh, he they sent them to like somewhere between twelve and fourteen stations. And in, in that included CBS and NBC, which he thought were great, by the way, just in terms of the aesthetics of the broadcasts. And the rest were like, you could just imagine like a train going from New York through Pennsylvania, through Ohio, you know, all the way. And he ends up in Oregon, actually. And then he comes back around. And so it was mostly stations that they hoped at the Rockefeller Foundation could then emulate a BBC model. That that seed is planted really early uh, in the thinking of non-commercial media, even though it begins more as correspondence classes than it does as cultural uplift programming or whatever they would have called it. So um, I did not see anything about college radio uh, in particular. Um, uh, and I'm going to stop on that point because I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> How much well, you might know about this? Yeah, I mean, and then by the 1930s, I think there really isn't much student-run radio. That's sort of a quiet period before we get carrier current stations starting, you know, mid to late 30s at the earliest. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, so Haverford's student-run station, WABQ, was part of ACUBS in the 1920s. And, and to me, that was interesting. Um, you know, so now we're going back, going back like another 10 years or so, uh, that that group of stations seems a bit broader than maybe what you see in the 1930s, I'm guessing, like a, more of a mixture. And, and probably that's it, more the case of radio in the 20s to begin with, that it's more of a, a lively crew. <laughs> is, that an, is, is, that, is that an artifact of the Telecommunications Act of 1934, right? Because that sort of sets up spectrum scarcity. So on the one hand, um, and therefore, if a station, you know, had not been a, a university station, especially a, co- a student run station, hadn't already been established prior to 1934, it probably would have been just difficult without without the capital, also given the 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 bias in a way that 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 uh, that Josh has mentioned in the system of the preference towards a well-funded uh, popular, you know, uh, listen, you know, popular with audiences kind of station versus something that might be amateur and run by students. Josh, do you think that that is probably perhaps some somewhat to blame for the, uh, for the lag in, in college, like student run college radio stations being, uh, built or coming to the fore in that kind of period after 1934? Yeah, I actually, I don't have a lot of uh, wisdom about the college aspect of this, although I am a proud alumni of 12 years of college radio across undergraduate and graduate school <laughs> broadcasting and did uh, an eccentric music show for a lot of years. Um, but I'm not totally sure about that. Well, here's the thing, though, is that what the book does look at and is is really actually very focused on, in, in my mind, is what happens after 34 in terms of an activism or media reform movement to recapture the airwaves so that they become more democratic and, and expand equal access to education uh, uh, by technology. And, and in, in a way, like that is a, a book about strategy. It's a book about the strategies that were uh, followed, what worked and what didn't, and then the consequent policies that would change as strategies worked or didn't. You know, over time, so that that is sort of like the tenor of it. And then, as uh, stations do begin to get more frequencies, it, it tends to happen for two reasons. Uh, the first is the introduction of FM, so there's less competition, and then the introduction of television, by which uh, the commercial networks were less interested in radio as the profit source. And then, I think you do begin to see uh, less pushback uh, for in terms of who gets to own what until religious stations, you know, begin to emerge. And that's where the college stations get their opening. I think that a lot of the college station openings come as there's just more channels available uh, and and they're less, um, you know, contested uh, in terms of profit versus state-based, uh, not state-based in a propaganda, state ownership or state reaching models uh, in public media, proto-public media. Right. And that really is the FM dial because that is what with the creation of FM broadcasting, there is a specific set aside for non-commercial activity. Right. Mm -hmm. And which did not exist prior to the creation of FM. Right. Exactly. You are listening to Radio Survivor and that we're here with our guest, Josh Shepard, who's recently published the book, uh, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And this is Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. With me are my co-hosts, Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese mendel So we go, we're kind of moving forward in time here, Josh. And so we've been talking a lot about educational radio and how does that how do, how do people's conception of educational radio, how does that shift to public radio? And when do we start talking about even that term public radio? Yeah, I think uh, so. the end of Robert McChesney's book, which is Telecommunications, Mass Media and Democracy, um, really does, it paints two things. Uh, one is that there was a different vision for media besides free markets. And I think that's true. Um, and, and then on the other side, um, he sort of, makes this argument uh, that it ends in 34 with the Communications Act and the 70% loss of frequencies that we mentioned before. But uh, what I found in the archives over uh, about six years of archive work, about 10 years from dissertation, you know, um, was that um, 
it actually galvanized the Communications Act actually galvanized the people in McChesney's book <laughs> to build an alternative system. And so what you begin to see after the Communications Act is um, this interest from sectors who were not previously interested. You get the philanthropic uh, sector uh, jumping in to help fund research into improving educational broadcasting. That creates the foundation for philanthropy now with public media. That starts uh, in the 30s. You get um, the Office of Education uh, begins to step in. And I talk a lot about the federal progressive level, the FDR, you know, uh, New Deal interest in equal access to education. Uh, the FCC, uh, this is a, a common misconception about them. Uh, they they didn't exist before 34. They were formed by the act. And they were then uh, tasked within its first year to regulate as a regular regulating agency, the senatorial rules that were given to them, which is why they are kind of the bad guy uh, in the, you know, I think McChesney's right about that, but they literally were just like a new non-deliberative body. Uh, and they had to implement frequency allocations in line with the rules they were given. But within a year, they are trying to figure out ways to get educators more allocations. So they even within the FCC, there's like this activist thing going on on behalf of non-commercial media and especially education. And then uh, you also get this grassroots bottom-up movement that I think community radio uh, um emblematizes to today. So for me, like the legacy of this great period of media reform is more in community media than NPR, for example, which I see as a very nervous sector that's <laughs> always responding to politics and even how it reports. Uh, whereas community media, there is this sense that um, access and communication and community building are essential to technology and media technology, period. Right. That is the goal. Uh, the goal is not merely accumulation alone. So, yeah. And what happens is uh, by, you know, the mid late 1930s, there's this all out multi-sector movement in which different groups are moving in parallel towards recapturing those frequencies if they can. And they're developing all kinds of, like I said before, strategies around it. One is how do you distribute good programming? How do you make good programming? And then how do you even research to know when education is actually working through technology? How do you even like understand if after a student hears a broadcast that they've learned the lesson? And that actually becomes, I think, one of the more unexpected parts of the book is uh, the emergence of communications research, which I did not see coming uh, when I began the project. Um, so yeah, I hope that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that leads right into because I was going to ask you about communications research, and that was that was a surprise to me as I was reading the book too. Like to get to that point, like wow, um, you know, attaching a lot of importance to trying to understand what's going on with radio, that that leads to this whole new discipline. So so definitely talk more about that for us about how that came to be. Well, yeah, it's um, because the listenership is so inclined uh, towards this kind of story. There's a lot of things I don't have to say, I think, about what radio does, which is, uh, you know, it, it is quite um, close to people. It's something very intimate that people uh, have in their personal lives. Um, it is something also that can supplement something you're doing in your house, right? It does simultaneously or driving and all these kind of things that we think about in this sector. And what happens is um, from a, you know, a research perspective, they would have seen that as something what they would have called like stimuli. It's a stimuli. What's the relationship between a stimulation or an affectation and an action or, or reception? So Rockefeller funds this one project called, they call Project 15, and it hires these early young researchers, a guy named Paul Lazarsfeld, a guy named Hadley Cantrell, and another guy um, named Theodore Adorno, and then another guy named uh, Frank Stanton. So Adorno is a very famous philosopher and is eventually kicked off the project. But Frank Stanton goes on to be president of CBS and Lazarsfeld founds the discipline of communication studies, essentially, with his, with his research on this. And they're tasked with that question of who, when they're listening, understands and who doesn't and why. And it seems like an almost impossible question to answer uh, when you've never actually developed a methodology for that. It was a ground zero moment for the methodology. And what they find um, is that if they combine social psychological, so mass psychology research, which was also new at the time, with early advertising research, which was really rudimentary, like just like age, sex, gender, did you like it? You know, that kind of thing for advertising, um, that they were able to account 
for what we would now think about as demographic research. And dem demography is essentially public policy. So presidential approval ratings, all these things use that same method. Advertisers, pre and post development, survey research for products, same methodology. And they are able to expand the categories of affiliation within that first year of research, which is around 1937. And suddenly, once they have all of these categories established beyond the rudimentary categories, they can break people apart, not just uh, in terms of preference, but they can actually unify different types of locations based upon the associations with the demography. Okay, I'm going to put that in the simpler terms, which is to say someone in, in New Jersey and someone in Montana um, in the earliest form of this research would have been separated from each other. What do people in New Jersey think? What do people in Montana think? But when you go from three categories of affiliation to like 20, you can say, okay, the, this type of person, this embodiment in Montana and New Jersey have the same belief system, and they actually turn out to respond similarly to content, to whatever they're listening to, more than simply the location alone or the sex or you know alone that they're that they're uh, affiliated with. So um, what happens is this does something really weird with the history, which is you can begin to predict people's behavior based upon the demographic categories that they've been associated with. So suddenly within the first year, they say, okay, we've not only figured out how to divide students based upon reception to information and if they can take the tests, but we actually seem to have discovered this uh, methodology that could be implemented very quickly. It's a fast methodology. You take the survey, you know, and then you have this data about the question asked and we can predict how people are going to behave. And um, the government loves it, uses it for propaganda research during World War II for the OWI. Um, schools love it because it actually becomes one of the foundations of uh, standardized testing. Uh, it, there's a, some correlate that goes on at the Rockefeller Foundation with that at the time. And then it also it becomes the foundation of all advertising research that we still use today and then consequently in the communications programs. So the question of how do we figure out um, if educational broadcasting is in fact educational accidentally engenders an entire sub-discipline of research that becomes academic departments in 1947, starting with the University of Illinois and then, uh, or NYU. There's some debate over which month, which one started quicker, NYU or Illinois. But uh, from there, and then their first test is really famous, which was War of the Worlds, because Frank Stanton was working for CBS. And that was the big takeaway is not just a huge cultural event, but it was actually the first event where they could triangulate response across geographic regions, as opposed to just in a localized way. And they found that different dem demographic categories responded similarly to the panic. And as Michael Sokolow and Jeff Puli have written, it's nowhere near the number of people that panicked that they thought, but it was enough to show that triangulation was possible, which then of course influences early sociology, uh, quantitative sociology. So quantitative sociology research also is partly born out of this moment as well. So this like, so how galvanized were people about non-commercial media? I mean, they literally started to invent ways of investigating audiences that are used by almost every sector in the world at this point, you know? So it was a big moment. And these are ideas we sort of all take for granted, even if we think about them in sort of more mundane terms of, you know, a newspaper article about, you know, a Taylor, the Taylor Swift effect and Swifties, <laughs> right? I mean, that's essentially a demographic category, which, uh, you know, advertisers are interested in, obviously, uh, and, and, you know, uh, spurs a lot of, of investment and, and research as well. Um, you know, so I mean, you know, it, it it's almost nearly mundane to us today because I think we've all been trained to think about audiences in this fashion, but it had to start somewhere. And it's interesting that mm. you've you sort of triangulated um, that start. I think a really fascinating uh, part of of I think what you lay out this history in in your book, Josh Shepard, uh, Shadow of the New Deal, is that. You set up this idea, and you've sort of hinted at it here in our discussion. There's sort of activism and advocacy, right? And um, the activists, of course, 
we're we're pushing very hard for for more of the uh, a certain type of public interest in broadcasting to have public interest broadcasting what would eventually become public broadcasting and then it seems to me that then you also have advocates who are basically building it is 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 that a too simple of a gloss the folks who were in the 50s you know, putting transmitters on the air, figuring out ways to bicycle tapes about, to bicycle records about, to exchange programming, going going into the practice of public broadcasting absent, uh, you know, any sort of uh, governmentally mandated system. Yeah, it was kind of a return of the philosophy major uh, moment in the book, <laughs> which was how do we think about what happens mm-hmm. in this history and what does it tell us about what a public is and what, you know, and how it's shaped and why it's shaped the way it is and how it's different from commercial media. So we have this unusual situation in this country where it's very idiosyncratic in that you it begins with essentially a double failure of educators, which is they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't have the support and the regulation cuts them off before they can figure it out. And then they have to figure out how to rebound. And so uh, what they did have at the time uh, especially from the late, very late twenties, like twenty nine until like thirty four, were these trade groups, and I don't expect anyone to know what they were called. They were called uh, the National Committee for Education by Radio, for example, and they articulated um, these visions for why non commercial media are important, and they would frame it in terms of lobby, and they actually did influence a couple senators to pose bills for set aside frequencies before the Communications Act of thirty four. Those bills failed. And uh, but they're able to articulate and kind of like exemplify in in a trade group structure uh, what it was that made this crucial compared to just simply owning the wires that AT&T with RCA owned or something like that. So after 34, these trade groups are essentially mired in total failure. (laughs) So for me, they were like activist groups that were doing good work, but it was largely rhetorical. And then after 34, the same people, this is what I love about the story. We're like, well, that didn't work at all. But what if we like built our own network Mm -hmm. that just didn't have a profit logic? What if we had a non-advertising network? And you see two emerge. One is called the University Broadcasting Council in Chicago. Uh, And that leads uh, two of its uh, stewards, which was Robert Hutchins and William Benton, to go on to then found uh, parts of the Ford Foundation, which then supports NET, National Educational Television, later. That's Hutchins. And Benton becomes a senator in Connecticut and founds Encyclopedia Britannica. And he actually writes the first uh, bill that gives educational frequencies to television uh, in 52. So so they're inspired by this, but it fails in Chicago too. But the other one's Rocky Mountain Radio Council, where I'm out in Colorado now. I used to be in D.C. And um, that's a guy named A.G. Crane, and he was in the National Committee of Education, National Committee of Education by Radio, NCER. And he says, well, I'm just going to like build an alternative system. I don't like this public interest mandate. I think this is a failure of democracy. So I'm just going to call what I'm doing as a spoof public radio. And he actually founds the term uh, public broadcasting service public radio. And the, so the nomenclature for all public media is actually from Colorado, hmm. from this activist who, what I say, turns into an advocate. And what I mean by advocate is uh, system building, not merely responding to things after they've happened and then you know raising awareness alone. But like, what does it mean to build the infrastructure so that 10, 15 years after you're gone, that you have posterity? And I also, you know, like I said at the beginning, this is kind of a lefty book in a way, about maybe a liberal history or something like that, which is to say, like, I'm very concerned about the way that the left is always behind in everything as, as, as a lefty. <laughs> so, like, well, what examples do we have of activist movements that succeeded? And what is, like, the political economic shape of that? You know, in, in, and that was one of the occupations, it's an academic kind of thing, but it's, it's one of the occupations that kept me in the archive all these years. So what I have this like theory about activism and advocacy, and it's not meant to be an objective theory. It's more of like a thought experiment, which is activism often makes things conspicuous that have already happened or need to be made aware to people who are present. Whereas like an, an advocacy is actually something more like a system building approach uh, by which um, machinations within a contradictory system, so a system that's inequitous by nature, begin to take uh, reform structures that 
allow for change later. So in other words, I'm being very careful with the words here because I don't think it always works. I mean, that's the whole point. Or if it does work, there's concessions along the way that water down what the activism might have intended in the first place. And so uh, what's the goal, right? What's the goal? So is an act, is our goal on the left simply to make things aware as they're happening already happened? Or um, is there something else? And one of the conclusions I came to from reading uh, Phenomenology, which is really nerdy, is that it's actually the mundane practice mm -hmm. by which you no longer have to advocate that is the conclusion of the process. The conclusion of the process isn't awareness. It's everyday life and banality. And so that's what the book tries to chronicle is like this big loss in 34 that lead to the success that is actually a sustainable institution. And I see institutions uh, not as um, institutions aren't the solution, but they're a strategy. So that's that's right. one of the other arguments of the book is that institutional uh, ad activism and advocacy is uh, one route that a discourse can take for its view. It's not necessarily the final goal. I'm very sympathetic to your view. And I will express my sympathy by sort of taking your same analysis and shoving it forward into the latter part of the 20th century, because I think that it applies very well to a smaller phenomenon, which is the establishment of low power FM. Hmm. I mean, low power FM is essentially born out of loss. Um, in 1978, when the FCC, uh, under, under pressure from lobbying, uh, including the commercial broadcasters, National Public Radio, and the National Association, uh, National Federation of Community Broadcasters, um, ended the licensure of Class D 10-watt educational radio stations, which were established as part of the uh, non-commercial set-aside, uh, and were primarily used by smaller educational organizations, high schools, community colleges, et cetera, mm -hmm. out of the sense of scarcity, um, in the sense that both scarcity from the standpoint of spectrum and also funding, having to compete for funding resources, uh, that was what led the arguments to um, put these stations aside, to, to uh, stop licensing them on the one hand, and two, um, making it uh, the case that the stations would have to relocate. They basically had an upgrade or die kind of, of mandate that if someone that came looking for your frequency, you would, you would have to give it up. So at which point now, maybe I think there are two existing uh, Class D stations now currently mm -hmm. broadcasting. Um, but in all of that, and, and, and the arguments about it sound very much like the uh, Siemens uh, from the BBC, his take on educational radio, the arguments were the broadcasting is amateurish. You know, class D stations. It's often replicating, say, pop music programming, but not as well as on the pop music stations. Mm -hmm. um, not as much service, et cetera, et cetera. Those are arguments. But that in turn ends up being the impetus for the, uh, what, what became the free radio movement, right? The micropower radio movement in the uh, 90s as uh, consolidation hit and uh, activists, radio activists realized, well, wait, we can't get an inexpensive low powered station on the air like we're simply prevented by policy from doing so mm. so the the part of the activism the civil disobedience was people creating you know what we call pirate radio stations but it's also a moment in which activists seize the opportunity with the fcc which is dealing with the problem to say well maybe it's time to create a service which is more accessible less expensive um and you know and will serve these different populations you know basically um, instead of prohibition, let's let's legalize it, but but then in a way in which we can control it, is just how you know roughly we end up with low power FM today. And I think that there is that mix again of there's the activism, but within that there was advocacy, there was the building of organizations. Uh, you may have heard of the Prometheus Radio Project, um, mm -hmm. which but as well there's Common Frequency and um, the uh, United Church of Christ became very involved. Uh, as as a, as a nationwide institution in the advocacy for uh, low power FM, but also then helping to build the infrastructure that would that was somewhat needed to help build out all these stations, and I think we've seen this time and again. And why I like it, and what I what I liked about um, Robert McChesney's you know first book, Telecommunications, Mass Media and Democracy, right, is that it reframes things from always having to be a policy argument 
Policy obviously is important. <laughs> policy was necessary in, in these things, right, for the creation of public broadcasting. But practice and the creation of things is also very important. Uh, so, I, you know, not a philosopher by training. So I'm going to, I'm going to speak in, in terms that perhaps are more gross uh, and less specific. But, you know, I, and I think that, that as I read through your book and, and came to the conclusion, you know, I see it, this is an example of, of these same stories and, and helps to address, I think, or, or at least I'm, I'm underlining your the problem that you cited of 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 you know the left is it just activism or just bringing attention to things or it, can we really bring things into to some sort of practice and, and practice does does my gloss given what you know sorry not to put you on the spot on the spot or make you grade me <laughs> as if I were uh, turning in my uh, my uh, third semester my, my third year uh, essay to you uh, Professor Shepard but it, does that make any sense to you uh, my my kind of uh, application of of your of your theory as I understand it. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'd really just like to focus on that you say there is that policy is not the same thing as the law, right? So, you know, a mm. policy applies to uh, the form of an institution, the structure of what, uh, how a law resonates, you know, and then how we live and how we practice within those conditions around us. So, you know, policies sort of ossify certain beliefs and practices that then have to be repeated or resembled, you know, by those uh, who are adherents to the specific policy. So, in, in other words, um, yeah, I think it's similar. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Right. So that's the voice of Josh Shepard, who is the author of the new book, Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh, uh, we have about two minutes left here on Radio Survivor on the radio program. And you said something right at the top of today's interview an hour ago that that the idea, the concept of public radio, when it was first being imagined into being in the United States, was that it was not for big audiences. And that's that off really interesting. It tickled my brain because to be to be a little bit tongue in cheek, but also maybe I'm being very serious. That sounds completely un-American to me that there <laughs> would be radio for 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 a few people. And like, was that the case um, 100 years ago? Was that idea so strange? Is it am I am I having difficulty with accepting that idea as being real because I live uh, in the 21st century, or or has that always been controversial? Wow. So, I, I mean, the, the distinction there would have probably been uh, the national um, went from what we would now think of as the I-95 corridor, like, you know, like Richmond up to Maine, basically, um, west, you know, think of the railroads expanding west. So there was a, a concept of networked centralized radio that you get from NBC Red and Blue, you know, and they had all the talent, they had the money, they had RCA, GE, United Fruit, who had the patents, you know, uh, AT&T, NBC. Uh, it was remarkable, really. Uh, and then uh, localism, right, and a provinciality of serving a local community. And that was really, truly true from the Midwest all the way to the West until after the post-war era. So I think like part of the story is like which part of the country and what were their needs and then how did the technology uh, really uh, appeal to them in what they felt that their needs were as these two simultaneous um, models are coming into conflict with each other in the 1930s, so local and national. Well, that's going to conclude today's radio program. We're going to continue the conversation on our podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts or at radiosurvivor.com. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein on behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mendel. Thank you so much for listening. And now, Josh Shepard, uh, thank you for joining us on the, on the podcast. I wonder, uh, I wonder if any of my colleagues know which direction to turn in or, or if uh, oh. I should just start speculating wildly as I often oh. do when it's my turn. I have a few ideas. To take us onto the internet. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about you in the archives for a decade, Josh. So I'm I'm curious, like, what what has been so tantalizing? And I mean, maybe if you could tell us a bit more about what's in these archives, um, because it sounds amazing. You know, looking at your book, the footnotes are just full of uh, materials that you have looked at in the archives. And so, how did this stuff 
why was this stuff saved and what kinds of materials are in there? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because it, it, the fact that the story can be told when other stories um, have been uh, either suppressed by non-archival traces, you know, uh, and usually that's delineated across uh, gendered race lines, you know, or, or like, um, you know, different stories that are less thorough, right? There's less documents available than this one. Um, it br brings up uh, sort of a certain amount of privilege that the advocates in this case had. So uh, in other words, a lot of them were educators and bureaucrats. And so that means they had to save all the paperwork. <laughs> so the story, like I'm, I spec I'm speculating, but I'm pretty certain there's close to a million pages spread across about 60 archival collections in this country, of which I probably got through about five, 600,000 in those, because wow. you can kind of get through two or 3,000 in a day oh when they're God. not useful, when they're not useful. <laughs> so a lot of, you know, archival research is like, well, what couldn't I use? And okay, here's a whole folder that's like, just not, it's, it's important, but not for me, you know, on this qu specific question I'm asking. And so you can actually like, kind of like in a week, you could easily get 20, 30,000 pages done because you couldn't take notes, right? So that's part of the detective work of doing archive work. But then you get other places and um, it, it you kind of get this sense of who the people are and what documents should exist and where they might be. And there's something like addictive about that, if that sounds interesting to the listeners, where like you <laughs> know, you can kind of like map it in your head, but you're not sure if it's true. And you go from archive to archive. And in this case, the, the big, big smoking dagger archive was in Cleveland, Ohio, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was at the um, Case Western Reserve uh, University archives. And I found all of these papers that just confirmed a huge number of suspicions that I had after six, seven years of research. And I had just, it, it led me to this one, and it was the pain fund uh, papers that are there, which was an early, um, uh, like, they're kind of like a right-wing liberal group who were very concerned about the excesses of commercial media and then consequently funded um, a lot of educational media as a counteractivity, and it also includes film. They were more well-known actually for funding educational film than radio, but they had this huge radio project. Yeah, and so th there's a way in which you, it becomes like a lifestyle, and you like say, well, who did I go to college with who lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and wants to eat some pierogies and you know drink Great Lakes beer with me after the day's <laughs> over. And you know, you, and you like drink a whole bunch of coffee, and you and you dig, as we say, you just dig and dig and dig. And um, yeah, and that's it. So like, in some ways, like there's like a personal dimension for historians where you just learn to like, you, you learn to love confirming your su suspicions and you enjoy the travel that goes with that. And, and, and then also just blowing off steam at the end of the day. I think I know somebody else like that who might be on this, uh, who might be on this. <laughs> oh my God. I'm completely in the thick of it right now. And I mean, I have to reveal, I'm, I'm reading um, student newspapers from the 1920s right now. And um, mm. there was, there's an issue with the with the server and so all of a sudden like i lost access a couple days ago and it's like i'm jonesing like waiting for the server to come back up <laughs> so yeah i i totally know the feeling and i'm going to ask you a lot of questions later not on the podcast about what you found about certain things that kind of intersect with my work but i mean it is fun this this detective work and I, you know, it's, you can see it in your book, how um, you might've been thinking about this project in one way, but it probably took a few left turns and right turns along the way. And maybe that's what I want to ask next is, you know, what you, you've told us a few things that surprised you, but what other, what other surprises uh, has, have happened to you during the course of this research? Yeah, I mean, in the last instance, you always have to let the evidence guide the argument, right? So everything in the book is like from personal correspondence and ledgers, even though I had a sense of what I wanted to argue, which was that public media activism history was a kind of leftist movement. One of the things I was surprised about <clears throat> is that, um, okay, so you have this equal access to education by technology model. This is what they're fundamentally uh, trying to achieve. They put in decades and decades of work. There's no ostensible financial gain for doing so, right? Uh, the beginning of this movement is a good 20 years before Brown versus the Board of Education, right? So by that standards of the 1930s, they're progressives. It, what surprised me 
is how little to no interaction there were uh, with different alterity communities that were hypothetically the goals of the broadcasts, right? The inclusive uh, aspects of that. What you find in like NBC papers, if you look at Amos and Andy notes, you know, or CBS papers, uh, which are not as extant, um, is you know, there's a huge amount of racism in old commercial media, and it's just blatant, and it was quote unquote natural to the time, not excusable, just it just seemed natural to them. Yeah, and I uh, mean, but- and it, it really, it I don't know my business, but it's there's probably a really good argument to be made that it's like, it's the the national identity of of white supremacy is like starts on, starts on with those radio programs. Yeah, and Birth of a Nation, yeah, for sure right. there's those ties. But what you don't find is anything like that in these papers. There's no, like, suspicious comments, but there's also an absence. There's an absence of, like, presence, right? You know, be pretentious about it. There's, like, well, like where's the NAACP if you're going to talk about this kind of, like, the history of African-American experience? It's like white dudes, you know? So that I was a little disappointed in some of uh, the people in the history at times uh, as well. And I, I, I talk about that in the introduction a bit in the book where I'm like, well, you know, like, you, y'all are doing work that I think was pretty important, you know, uh, for this country. But, like, what, what's where's that next obvious chess move? where it actually becomes something that is representative. And, and obviously this is a problem of public media history that has never gone away, uh, which is that it is very focused on specific economic and racial classes. Um, and it always has been, you know, so it, it's like, it's a very contradictory history, which is why I keep saying it's not a great leftist history. It's a leftist project, but like, I don't want to say that this is the example that I was hoping that it would be afterwards, but it is at the same time, an example of how policy advocacy works when it works, you know? And so it's like, how does the system work? How do institutions work? What did the grassroots organizers do? Why did that work and not another thing? And then how did the policy get changed? That's what it is a good example of, I think, in my opinion. So, And I mean, would you say that it was an elite program nevertheless, right? I mean, so they may have been a, a less overtly racist <laughs> Yeah. elite um and perhaps uh, expressing a more banal form of white supremacy but that you know the it doesn't you can correct me it doesn't seem as though these were these are not scrappy you know uh dirt under the fingernails uh you know kind of uh uh what would we would later see as hippie leftists but you know still members of the elite and and this and and their work reflected uh, their prejudices as as elites even um is, is that a is that an unfair uh, reading on it yeah real quick i'll give a one quick anecdote i was in ohio state which was one of the most important universities at building what becomes public media uh, especially in the 30s and i was talking to someone who had actually known one of the figures from this history who was so old that they <laughs> no, they overlapped with someone who was already old when they were young you know that kind of thing that was there from the 1920s and he would go to his house and he went to his house and he had like a servant at his house the the, the guy at osu uh and he and he wouldn't let the person who cleaned the house go out the front door it was not allowed for them to be seen having entered in the front door, even though they, they were. And, and he asked them, and this this guy was like a lefty uh, education professor. He says, well, why don't you let him go out the front door? And don't you see that like your entire project is essentially to make the front door for everyone, you know, and, and the, the guy could not get his head around it. Well, so that's not how we do it, you know. So there, there's like this very contradictory, not excusable, but contradictory, um, you know, mix of idealism uh, with regression that is inherent really uh, to this day midwestern life and i'm from the midwest and from chicago you know for example josh shepherd thank you so much for for joining us on radio survivor it was such a pleasure to have you and jennifer thanks for producing today's episode thank you for having me